Jesus said to the church, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, and I wish you were one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. See, you think you've got it good. You think you're rich. You think you don't have need of anything. But the truth is, you are poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. I wish you would buy the stuff for me. I wish you would get your gold for me that's been refined so it would be good. I wish you would get your clothing for me so that it would be washed and good for you to use. I wish you would use the salve on your eyes that I give. I stand at the door and knock. If you'll answer and open, I will come in and we'll eat and we'll have dinner together. I was drawn to that verse this week in Revelation for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I believe that as the American church, we are in danger of being the church of Laodicea. And I don't mean in kind of any kind of epical, generational, kind of um, dispensational way. And you may not have a clue what those words mean, and that's all right. That's good, actually. What I mean is we are churches that have everything we need, or at least we think we do. I did an interesting thing today. Somebody put this up. I don't even know where I saw it on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere. But they, they, there's this website where you can put in what you make in a year. And it will tell you what percentage in the world you are in wealth. And so I went there and I just started putting some numbers in. And basically, a small salary here is in the top percent in the world. In fact, and some of you will go try and find this now because it's kind of interesting, it ranks you in the world of your wealth. It was a little humbling for me because when I put mine in, I was in the millions. Okay, There are like six or seven million people richer than me. You think, oh, see there, there are a lot of people richer than me. Until you realize there are six and a half billion on the planet. In fact, our family, which we don't consider ourselves wealthy. We are very appreciative to this church for the... uh, salary that we're paid and for what God has provided. But we're in the top 0.5% in the world. Now, that's not really hard for me to believe because I just got back from a place where people have nothing. And where our money can buy lots of things because we have it that they could never afford that they make. So I was thinking about, as the American church, we have all this stuff. I mean, no church organization in the history of the world has has as much stuff, buildings, technology, wealth as the American church. And yet we still seem to be lacking. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor about 60 years ago, says that the church is in danger of being Laodicea because we have everything we think we need and are missing the only thing that we really need. I also thought about this verse because I kind of like opposite things, like sweet and salty. Anybody out there like sweet and salty? By the way, just a little plug here. Ben and Jerry's makes an ice cream that has salty caramel in the middle of waffle cone, fudge-covered waffle cone. It's amazing, all right? 
just a little note. One of the greatest inventions they ever made was that trail mix with the M&Ms in it. You know, I mean, I, trail mix is okay, but when you put... Y'all, y'all are not feeling me this morning. Are you there? Because y'all are just looking at me like, right, when you, what's that on your face? All right. So, I like opposite things. And, and this is, what book is that from? What I quoted, where is it from? Some of you know. Where is it from? Revelation, right? What's the significance of Revelation? Where is it in the Bible? It's the end, right? And we're starting a series of messages called Old Time Religion. And I'm going to guarantee that what we're going to talk about is not what you immediately think of when you hear that song and you think Old Time Religion. Because when we're talking about Old Time Religion, we're going to talk about Old Time Religion. I mean, like today, we're going back as far as you can possibly go back to have something to talk about religion and worship. We're going to Genesis chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. And so I was thinking about opposites because Genesis chapter 4, where is that in the Bible? It's at the beginning, right? And so I was thinking about these opposites, Genesis and Revelation. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, we're going to track through the Old Testament with principles of worship and what it means for us. And I started to think about how Scripture has this, or several themes that weave in and out throughout it. And we're going to see today in the story that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 4, this story that finds itself talked about again in Revelation. About someone that appears to be doing what they ought to be doing, but their heart, their emotions, their, their being is not into it. Genesis chapter 4, let's kind of catch up on the story. This is not hard to do because in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, how many chapters before that are there? Three, look at those math skills are tight today. Three chapters before that in chapter four, what happens in Genesis chapter one? Creation, right? And the Lord spoke and it came to be. He said, let there be light and there was light in the end of the day and it was good. He creates the sun, the moon, he creates the stars, he creates the earth, he creates all that stuff. And after every day, days one, two, three, four, five, he looks at it and says, it is good. And then he creates man on day six and he looks at it and he says, it is good. Very good. Y'all were better than the first service. I had some people go, bad. Well, no, it's not bad. We had self-esteem lessons in the first service. He, he gets through with creation. He looks at me six and he says, it is very good. Perfect. He puts him in Eden. He says, Adam. And then chapter 2 of Genesis, what is chapter 2 about? It's the story of Adam being created and Eve, right? So Adam and Eve are created. They're put in the perfect environment where they don't have to work hard and food is just there. Everything, the animals come by and they, uh, Adam is a little Dr. Doolittle there. He's talking to the animals. He's naming the animals. He's got them all there. I don't know if he actually talked to the animals, but he named all the animals, all right? So he names the animals. Everything's good. He gets through with that and he says, I'm still lonely, God. I need something. So God puts him to sleep, takes out the rib, makes the woman, right? They get together. It's beautiful, wonderful. Everything is great. It is paradise. It is perfect. It has never been better. Chapter 3, what happens? Serpent, right? Who apparently was not doing this, but was walking around. That's a little creepy. If you walked out your back door today and saw a snake walking around, would you be a little creeped out by that? If I walk out my back door and I see a snake crawling around, I'd be creeped out. If it's... So the snake comes up, they have the discussion, and Eve does what? What does Eve do? She eats the forbidden fruit, right? Sives it to Adam. Adam eats the forbidden fruit. God comes down and says, 
Where are you? They say, we've hidden. Why have you hidden? Because we're naked. Well, how'd you know you were naked? Well, we did what you told us not to do. God, we're sorry. Actually, my wife made me do it. So get on to her. And she says, the serpent made me do it. And the blame game starts. And then we get to chapter, end of chapter 3. And God curses the land. He curses the serpent. And He sends them out of Eden. So Genesis chapter 4. Simple story that shows the amazing progress of sin. Here's what it says. Adam knew his wife Eve intimately. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now I want you to look at that for just a minute. This is important. It's important theologically. It's important historically. It's important for everything that comes afterwards in Scripture. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord said, I'm going to bring a deliverer. I'm going to bring someone that will help break the curse of sin. And they just had to trust that in faith. And so when Eve has this child, it is a miraculous confirmation that God is not done with the human race. The birth of a child is an amazing thing, right? Amen? I mean... I've been witness to my four children's birth. It's an amazing thing. How many of you remember when um, maybe your, your, your wife got pregnant or um, you told your husband when you, you were pregnant for the first time, saying, hey, come here, come here. I think I can feel it kicking. You put the hand over it. Y'all remember that? Does it strike you at the moment? There is a human being inside there, right? It's an amazing thing imagine if you had never seen that before or known that could happen adam and eve are the first two people on the planet they were put here by god so imagine eve's excitement when all of the sudden this human being growing inside of her and then When she has the baby, there it is. It is God's promise. It is the assurance that He has not done with them. It is a momentous, exciting moment. Praise be to God, I have a boy. They couldn't run and tell anybody, but it would have been that way. Right? So there's this excitement. And then, she also has Abel. Now, I want you to notice real quickly from the very beginning that the main character in this story is Cain. It's not Abel. Abel's an afterthought. We'll talk about that in a minute, but Cain is the main story. So it starts with Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have made a male child with the help of the Lord. And she also gave birth to his brother Abel. It goes on to say in the next verse. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. Now, just real quickly, there's no significance other than the fact that the firstborn son, Cain, does exactly what his father used to do. So there's no significance in one being a shepherd and one being a farmer. It's just that Cain, the firstborn, followed in his father's footsteps. Next verse. In the course of time, Cain, and by the way, this is the first mention anywhere in Scripture of sacrifice or worship. Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, we're not going to talk in detail about this now, but I just want you to notice that Cain is a farmer. 
And he brings some of the offering from the farm and gives it to the Lord. Abel is a shepherd, has livestock, and he brings some of the gifts from what he has done to the Lord. Both men bringing gifts from their work to the Lord. Both men attempting to worship the Lord and to bring sacrifice to Him. The next verse is one of those verses in Scripture that has received lots of things written about it. The Lord had regard or accepted or took in Abel's offering. But He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Next verse. Cain was furious. And he looked despondent. Cain was furious. It, it does, it's not, the, the word there is not just kind of mad or a little bit mad. He is flying off the handle mad. This is, somebody has pushed his buttons for the last time. Somebody has said the wrong thing to him and he's not going to let it happen again. This is it. This is the moment. Now here's the question. Who is he mad at? Who's he mad at? Maybe. Who's he really mad at? Who didn't accept his offering? God. Cain's furious. And he's furious at God. And God looks at him and asks a rhetorical question. He says, why are you so mad? Why do you look so despondent? Here's the thing. Cain is so mad, he can't even cover it up. Never had somebody that's so mad, or you've ever been so mad, that everybody around you knows it, whether you've told them or not? Any of you have spouses that are that way? Right? How are you feeling? I'm fine. No, you're not. Yeah, I'm good. Nothing's wrong. Just get out of here. He's furious. And the Lord says, why are you furious? Why are you despondent? And he doesn't give him time to answer. He says, basically, you've got a choice right now. He looks at Cain and he says, listen, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? The actual verse is just kind of interesting. He says, if you do what's right, your face will be uplifted. In other words, you'll go from downcast to lifted up. You'll be encouraged. It'll be right. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You have to rule over it. You remember cartoons growing up? The angel on one shoulder. The devil on the other. And the interplay that went with that about whether you're going to accept or not or what was going on. That's what the picture here is. The Lord says, listen, you know what's right. And you just got to decide right now if you're going to handle this and do this the right way or not. Can I just say, this is just this is extra, this is not planned in the sermon, it's just free for you today. We all have those moments in our lives, amen, where we know what the right thing to do is, and yet it is so easy not to. The picture that he gives here of sin is interesting. It is of an animal that is crouching and appears to be asleep, but is ready to to pounce when you walk by. When I was growing up, we lived in a little neighborhood. Um, There's two streets mainly, Rose Drive and Cooley Drive, and there was a street that connected them. And we all, every day during the summer, we played baseball. That's just what we did. We didn't go on vacations. We didn't have big, we just played baseball. 
And every day walking from my house to the baseball field, which was Greg Petty's backyard, we had to walk past a house that all I knew about the house, I didn't know who lived in the house, I didn't know the name of the guy, I don't remember seeing the guy. All I knew is he had a family of Dobermans. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, And they were out back. And so we always gauged whether or not we walked through his yard on the presence or lack thereof of the Dobermans. Now this is, this is you know... 1981, 82, they didn't have those laws about fences and leashes and invisible stuff on their collar that makes them yelp when they get too close. They didn't, none of that. And so we would always kind of gauge, oh, they're in or they're on the front yard so we can go or we're walking three yards over. And I remember one day in particular, we were playing baseball and my brother, who was five and a half years older than me, always gave me the opportunity to be catcher. Because he said, Lyle, you get to be on every play. Forget the fact it's 98 degrees out here and you have to wear the full catching gear and nobody else wants to wear that. You get to be on every play. It's, it's the best position, Lyle, you can play. So I'll remember one day in particular, I was catcher and it was like 100 degrees outside and we got through and I told Brian, I am not walking around. We're going through that yard. And I remember walking and we looked over to the side and the Doberman was laying there with his paws out front and his head down. And we thought, it is our lucky day. He's asleep. And all I remember is walking past and feeling the head raise. You know what I'm talking about. That extra sense that you have that something's going on. And I remember walking a few more steps and looking back and the yelp came and four came after us. Now, I won't tell you the rest of the story, other than it involves my brother going kamikaze on dogs, but and protecting his five-and-a-half-year younger brother. But we made it home safely. We're here today. We're all good. But here's my point. God looks at Cain and says, listen, right now in your life, you're at a crossroads, a decision moment. And if you choose the right way, good things are going to happen. But if you don't, sin is ready to pounce. It looks like it's asleep. It looks like it's a decision, but it's ready to pounce. And it will take you over. Here's the thing about our lives. Most of the time, we don't realize how close to that we are. Let's see what Cain does. Most of you know. Cain said to his brother Abel, now just for your knowledge, in the original Hebrew text, let's go out into the field in there. It just says Cain talked to his brother. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I want you to think about something just for a moment. We have gone from the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve to banishment from the Garden for them to murder among their sons. Think about Eve. I have a child with the Lord. It's the help. It's the promise of the new day. And now... One of her sons is dead at the hands of the brother. Here's the crazy thing about what Cain did. I don't know how he imagined he was going to get away with it. Because it's kind of just them at this point in history. God comes. I want you to notice something here. We talked about in chapter 3 when sin happens. 
I want you to see how far sin has taken this family already. You remember when God comes to Adam? We're looking for you, where are you? And Adam says, we hid. And then Adam is the confessor, right? Well, why did you hide? Well, we were naked, Lord, and we're naked because we ate. And we ate because my wife told me to. And my wife told me to because of the serpent told me to. I, I just, and it's just like, any, any of you have children that, you know, they hold it in, hold it in, they finally confess. It just, anybody have one of those? Yeah. Just comes. Well... What I did was, and then you got ten minutes of what they did. That's the way Adam was. He couldn't help but confess. Look at Abel. Where's your brother, Abel? I don't know. Did he know where his brother was? So we've moved from can't help but confess to flat out lie to the Lord. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility to know what my brother is doing? Is it my fault that he got in trouble? What Am I the one responsible for him? Aren't you glad as parents we don't ever hear that? All right. Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's an interesting phrase because the word cries out is literally the cry of someone who is desperate. In the Old Testament, it's used several times. One time it's when these guys are hungry in Genesis, towards the end of Genesis, they don't know where they're going to get food and they cry out in desperation. Another time it's when a female is being um, assaulted by men and she cries out in that moment in desperation. It is another of oppressed by people that are receiving injustice and they are crying out to the Lord to save them. This is not some kind of little bitty thing. This is the blood is screaming to me that something has happened. What are you going to do? What have you done, Cain? And then he gives him his curse. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. Adam in the Garden of Eden where it was easy to get anything he wanted to eat and to cultivate. Taken out of the Garden of Eden where it is said that he had to work hard to get anything. To Abel who is told, you're not getting anything. And as a result, you're going to wander around. So now you are cursed. First time in all of Scripture that a human being is cursed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. It goes on to say, But Cain answered the Lord. That's too great to bear. He says, In fact, Lord, I can't go anywhere. I've got to wander. And when I wander around, somebody's going to kill me. And the Lord says, Then what I'll do, Cain, is I'll put a mark on you. I don't know what that mark is. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what the mark would be. But whenever the mark is on you, nobody will kill you. Because if they kill you, they're going to be punished more. And then the last verse is one of the saddest verses, especially in this part of Scripture, when it says in chapter 4, verse 16, Cain went out from the Lord's presence, lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We start with Cain and Abel attempting to give an offering to the Lord to draw near to him. And we end with wandering away from the Lord's present in the land of Nod. So here's the question I ask. What started the downward spiral? What was the issue? At the beginning of chapter 4, you tell me, what was the issue here? What did Abel get angry about at first? What did he get angry about? 
the offering, that God didn't accept his offering. And the question becomes, well, why didn't God accept his offering? And there have been people throughout the, the history of the world that have tried to figure that out. They've tried to say, well, it's because um, one was a, an animal offering, another was vegetable. But that just doesn't hold water based on what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. Well, some say because um, God just likes shepherds better than farmers. But that just doesn't hold water. Some people say, well, it shows God's election, that he just chooses some people and he doesn't choose others. And I just think the testimony of Scripture doesn't support that. So what's the difference? The difference is found in some key words used in the midst of Genesis chapter 4. That basically says this, and if you've got your Bibles open, you can look back to it, around verse 3. That says, Cain brought some of the stuff that he had grown as a farmer. Abel brought what? First and fat. There is a principle established in Genesis chapter 3 that goes throughout the rest of Scripture that says that when we come to the Lord, we bring the first and the fat. Now, obviously, we don't actually bring fat, right? Are you with me? Nobody's got to bring any fat today, all right? What does he mean by the fat? Why is the fat important? Well, let me ask you this. How many of you like steaks? Alright? What, and let's not be politically correct and diet conscious for a minute. What's the best part of a steak? The fat. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? Right? Let me just tell you a little quick story. We just got back, I don't know if y'all know this, but we've been gone for a couple of weeks. I have. We went to Brazil. And one of the things that we always do in Brazil is we go to a Brazilian steakhouse. It's an amazing place. They put the meat on a skewer. They roast it over an open fire on a twirling spit. They bring it to your table. They set it up. They cut the meat off for you at the table. They take it back, put it back on, cook it some more, bring it back, do that. All right? Usually when you go, they bring you the really cheap stuff first. Sausages, tough meat. They save the good stuff till you're full so you don't want it. This year, I was sitting in between or right around Kevin and Randy. Deborah and Denise, Deborah Williams, Denise Cologne were on the other side. And we were having it, and the first piece of meat they bring around is the best piece of meat. It's called bacanha. Alright? Give a little education here. It's from the hump on the back of a Brahma. Okay, we don't have that around here. It is a piece of meat that's like ribeye that then has a huge layer of fat on the outside. It will change your life. Alright? The first time they bring it out, it's okay. Right? They bring it out, they bring it around, they get it off, we, we, we see it. But then about the third time they bring it around, I notice and point out to Kevin and Randy that apparently the fat side had gotten stuck on the underneath part by the fire. And it was seared and crisp. I know it's 1130, I apologize for the watering of the mouth. And they sliced it off. And I like mine like medium and there was, this, this was in the range of medium with blood flowing, all right? It was rarish, okay? It was rare medium, not medium rare. And they cut it off, and they put it on your plate, and took, you know, I mean, that's not the kind of piece of meat. You can cut the fat off and stay to the side, right? So you get it all together, and you take that. It just, anyways, it was good. Can I get an amen, Randy and Kevin? All right. 
Bob was down there eating chicken hearts on the under the table. He wasn't getting the good stuff, right? Here's the thing. The principle of Cain shows us that when we come to worship the Lord, we always bring the first and the best. And that's really easy to say, and it's really hard to do. Can I tell you something? And we're going to talk about worship for the next few weeks out of the Old Testament. And and I just want you to kind of take away today one thing. The biggest obstacle to your worship is you. The biggest obstacle you're going to have in worship is you. And listen, I'm in church work. I hear people tell me their obstacles to worship all the time. It's this music or that music or the way he dressed or she dressed or where I sat or I couldn't hear or I was too loud or it was too soft or I couldn't hear that or I couldn't go there or I got tired. You talked too long or you didn't talk long enough. You sang too much. You didn't sing. We Can I get an amen, Jeff? We amen. We hear it. And I'm not saying that there aren't issues in worship that have to be addressed. But the first worship war, if you want to call it that, between Cain and Abel, shows us that the biggest obstacle to your worship is you. We have been so infiltrated by sin, we don't even recognize it in our own lives. And as a result, when we try to come to the Lord, we are tainted and our offerings are as well. And we don't bring the first and the best. We give Him the leftovers in the refrigerator that nobody wants to eat. And when it comes to worshiping the Lord God Almighty, He deserves only the first and the best. James McDonald, who's a pastor up in Chicago, says that the Lord deserves the first of everything. The first day of the week, the first moments of the day, the first part of your income. The best of who you are and what you do. We're in Brazil. We do this... uh, we do this drama called The Redeemer. Some of you have seen it, and if not, we're going we're gonna to have a Brazil report service uh, along with um, other summer things in a few weeks, and we'll do The Redeemer for you that day. But um, when we went down there, I realized we were going to need some help doing The Redeemer because The Redeemer requires at least two male parts, and we were carrying four men, and three of them were hauling blocks on the construction place. And I was not in a position to be able to play. So we got an interpreter and a Brazilian to do that for us. And then um, girls from our group did the other parts. But one of the guys that was playing the role of Jesus in it, we found out about the second or third day, was helping us. He was there before we got there at 8.30 every morning. He was there after we left every day at 4.30. And then we found out he was working a shift of like 7 or 8 at night till 6 or 7 in the morning of work. He's working all night long, getting off, coming straight to the church and doing Jesus in this drama ten times in a day. So I just, one day, I get through the interpreter, I said, you don't need to do that. I mean, you don't need to do that. And said, tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, just plan on, I'll do it. I'll do that part. You get some rest. You do what you need to do. Don't worry about it. And so we agreed to that. On Thursday morning, I get there. I'm prepared. I've got everything ready mentally to do it. And he's there. I said, what are you doing? You're supposed to be home and sleep. He said, this is where I'm supposed to be. And I thought about in our American culture, how many of us would say, no, my priority is to work, not to the church. And the one thing I have to do is work, and the church comes secondary. The one thing I have to do is sports, and the church is secondary. The one thing I have to do is 
Study. The church is secondary. We're to bring the first and the best. What about you? June 30th, 2013, you're sitting in a worship service that started at 11 or 10.30ish. It's now a little bit past that. Did you come today with the first and the best? Or are you just kind of making do with what you got? In your life, on a regular basis, do you give the first and the best to the Lord or do you give it to your projects and your work and other stuff? The story of Cain is a reminder that God only accepts the first and the best. So what are you giving? Let's pray.